This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you are listening to episode 103. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Cromwell Colson, CEO of OTC Markets Group, Inc., a publicly traded company. The symbol is OTCM on the OTCQX. And I had originally spoken with Cromwell on the podcast in episode 25. And really during that episode, we discussed his background, history of OTC markets, but we, we actually really focused heavily on Reg A+. And, and at that time, in August 2016, the Jobs Act rules had just gone into effect in May 2016, and OTC was and still is an integral part of that ecosystem. However, I invited Mr. Colson back on today for, for a couple reasons. One, I think it's really important for the microcap community to hear from Cromwell and get his latest insights on critical issues that affect our space. Two, I've spoken with many investors, both on here, at events, etc., and wanted to, to really take this opportunity to ask Cromwell some questions that other investors want to know from him. And three, I, just to really to get an update on what OTC Markets is doing to create a transparent, connected, and open marketplace. So I want to thank you all again for tuning in to episode one of three of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my interview with Cromwell Colson. But first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap Podcast. The 2020 Investor Conference season is upon us. Where are you going this year? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me, maybe a few of the guests you've heard on this podcast, to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21st through 23rd, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you will get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known emerging growth private and publicly traded microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21 through 23, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap Podcast. And with me today is a very special guest where we traveled all the way to his offices in downtown Manhattan. With me right now is Mr. Cromwell Colson from 
OTC Markets Group. He's the CEO, and they're a publicly traded company. The symbol is OTCM on the OTCQX. Grandma, welcome back. It's good to have you on. Thanks for having me, Robert. It's great to be on the show. It's great to have you again. So last time we had you on here was about August 2016. But before we get into some updates and new questions that I want to ask you as to just really what's been going on since then is, you know, let's get your background and also brief background on OTC markets. So my background was that I was a OTC trader and value investor for a small market maker that made markets in lots of NASDAQ and OTC traded securities. And in those days, you had to be a market maker to be able to buy on the bid and sell on the offer to trade efficiently. So we would make markets in a lot of stocks. We would invest our capital in stocks that had an attractive valuation. And we handled orders for many of the most famous value investors who ran mutual funds or hedge funds. So as I said, last time we had you on here was August 2016. So, you know, OTC markets has grown considerably since then, you know, with more companies trading on your markets. What would you, what would you say are some of the reasons for this growth? Well, I think the reasons are that we've always focused on serving the industry. We view ourselves as a vendor, you know, and our mission is to create better informed and more efficient markets. We started out, I'd been a user of in the over-the-counter market, and it was, it was very inefficient. You might be bidding five for a stock, and you'd see it trade at three because nobody could, nobody could see that your bid was on the screen. So our initial goal was how do we put the information on the screen so investors and brokers are going to be more efficient. Then, as we did that, did a good job, we realized that we needed to add in a second layer. Once we created it, an open and transparent trading market where investors could see prices, we needed to build the connectivity for companies to provide information into the market so that they could provide business transparency through disclosure and demonstrate the levels of compliance that they've met. And that, that changed the market because it went from a trading market focusing on best execution for brokers to a market that could support efficient price formation for a wide range of securities. So what, what would you say then is, because this is going back even as a follow-up to the first question, because I, I don't know if some if our full audience even knows the reasoning for separating out of the tiers, because most probably remember OTCBB, OTC Pinks, but then when you came aboard and created OTC Markets, you, we have the QX, the QB, and now the Pinks. So can you maybe explain some of the, the ideas behind that as to why you wanted to tier it up like that? Well, it's a simple three-tier process. And at the top level with OTCQX, it's for the companies that are not penny stocks that meet certain corporate governance principles like independent audit committees or are listed on a qualified foreign exchange that have independent outside directors that, uh, that are not penny stocks, that have ongoing operations or, or, or a substantial amount of assets. Th that part was creating OTCQX was to fit the wide range of the investable securities, more investable securities in our market. And because we, at the time, the old pink market didn't exist for companies. It existed for brokers to get best execution in any security. But once we'd build up OTCQX, we realized there needed to be a middle tier, which is a venture market. 
And our definition of OTCQB as a venture market is it's a market that gives companies and entrepreneurial management teams a chance to succeed. So, you know, by definition, these are companies that are not fully formed, management teams that are not built out, their products not ready for delivery. And with that, it's really transparency driven and trying to make sure that there's transparency about the business and ongoing disclosure, there's transparency about who the officers and directors are. And, you know, and, and that we believe is a really efficient way to provide public markets for smaller companies. And I would imagine that, I mean, you have a full team, you know, we're at your offices, you have the full team here that wants to make sure that the companies that are listed on the QX and also the QB continue to meet those requirements that they need to have in order to be on those markets, correct? Yes. So, you know, as our business has grown, you know, we've become responsible for more parts of the market, organizing the market, uh, being used for broker-dealers to build compliance processes around, being relied upon for blue sky disclosure, you know, and with, you know, responsibility, has come additional regulation. Originally, our electronic quotation system was not regulated at all. Broker-dealers were regulated in what they did in the system. Today, we operate two ATSs, uh, SEC-registered ATSs, which are regulated by FINRA as well. And one of them is regulated under regulation SCI, which is the same systems compliance and integrity rules that the big board Big Board follows, and so NYSE, NASDAQ. And so, you know, we believe that as your responsibilities grow, your recognition grows, your regulation grows, and you have to meet a higher standard, and your reputation will follow. So my next question would be is, how would you say cross-trading and direct listings on OTC markets have affected the company? So... You know, it's interesting. The New York Stock Exchange has gotten a ton of press about direct listings. And I think that's fantastic for the industry because we're moving forward from going public was to raise capital. And that role wasn't really true because you raise capital from investment banks in IPO. Public markets perform a different role. And with direct listings, we can really talk about what we do. Right. And, you know, we provide business transparency and we provide demonstration of companies' compliance and governance levels. And finally, you get market feedback all around a facility that gives existing shareholders liquidity. And, you know, we watch what took place and why, you know, why is this, why is this, this transparency so important and this market feedback? Because it brings market discipline. We look at WeWork. You know, it met all the exchange listing standards, but when the transparency came out, we had market discipline. And market discipline is so fantastic for companies. You know, some companies complain there's not a single professional sports team that doesn't play in a well-lit stadium with lines on the field measuring them and a, and a scoreboard for everyone to see and fans cheering and jeering. That's how the pros play. And Bob, if you want to run your business with discipline, you need to take it out of darkness. Right. 
uh, going on that analogy. There's a few sports teams that I, I think would love to be part of more of that analogy to have more fans yeah. in there for sure. And, you know? that's, and <laughs> that's, overseas that's ones, so we can get to cross listings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please. You know, cross listings are fantastic. So we've got direct listings, we have cross listings. You know, there's lots of different reasons companies will trade in the OTC market, but it takes the company making a step and caring about the market quality for their shareholders for a company to qualify for OTCQX or the ones that can't qualify for OTCQX yet to, to meet the standards for OTCQB is, but cross-listings are very exciting because we have a list of qualified foreign exchanges. Markets around the world are becoming more sophisticated. For US investors, whether it's buying an, an ADR or a US investor is buying the ordinary shares but trading in US dollars through a US regulated broker-dealer, you know, we're connecting this world of investment opportunities. And, you know, we keep hearing, because we go around the world and we meet big companies, small companies, and of course some companies are very scared, nervous of the litigation environment. But we also hear that companies all around the world say the most sophisticated, the smartest, the best investors with the breadth and depth, with a breadth and depth are in the United States. So what we do is we've created for companies an official information channel for them to feed their, for non-U.S. companies to feed their information efficiently into the U.S. with a facility that allows U.S. broker-dealers to provide best execution. And, you know, that's a fantastic thing because the world's not becoming less global. Oh, it's only becoming more and more global. Actually, one of my theses, because, you know, at our conference when we, uh, I, did a few of these live podcast panels. And one of the main gripes that a lot of my panelists have always said is that, ah, we just need more companies. We want more of those monster energies, full disclosure, not a shareholder. But, you know, I, sorry, I have to do that. But <laughs> but it, it, the, the, real, the thing is, is that they're looking abroad for new potential opportunities. And for them, I've always thought, well, it's still very difficult to go and buy, you know, a company listed on the, a for a U.S. investor to go and buy U an ASX-listed company, even still TSXV, TSX, CSE, you know, it's still quite difficult to, difficult to just go and buy them directly. So it's nice if they have that OTC listing, just it makes it a little bit easier as a U.S. investor. And when, when we launched OTCQX, we knew it would work well for the big ADRs, the global giant companies. Mm -hmm. But there was a small Austrian biotech company that joined right away. Mm -hmm. The CEO was incredibly excited. And, you know, we were a little bit nervous because we understood how the larger companies traded well and the process we'd created was very efficient for them to put their disclosure into the market in a non-burdensome way. Mm -hmm. But this biotech company showed up, joined OTCQX, and about a third of their dollar volume globally started to take place in the U.S. And I went to, to Sydney, Australia and met with the CEO. And she, she said to me, she said, well, you know, I've been going around to all these great biotech conferences in the United States. But whenever I said, oh, we're traded on the ASX, the Australian Stock Exchange, everybody just turned off. They were asleep. It was painful to trade there. The currency rates... And once I could say, and we're traded on OTCQX, our ADR and our ordinary shares, and this is our symbol, they, they were able to buy her stock if they liked her story. Right. And that part of it is, was, was fantastic because we knew we could knit together 
big companies, mid-cap companies, biotech companies, you know, there's, there's so many innovative industries that we're going to see around the world. There's great investment banking communities raising capital for the local companies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as we think about capitalism, a company, trust with small companies is so important. So the local community mm -hmm. often can do a better job, the local exchange, mm -hmm. with a small company than having a small company move its have to go all the way across the U across the world and have its primary listing mm -hmm. be in the United States. So my next question for you is, you know, last time uh, we spoke with you, we, we were discussing at length the relationship between Reg A Plus and, and OTC markets. Uh, that was a very fun conversation talking about that. You know, I, I have to ask, what's new here? So Reg A is a fantastic piece of, of, of rulemaking by Congress as part of the JOBS Act to increase access to capital. But it was, it was a solution ridden by regulators. Rather than taking what market participants have been doing and codifying the best practices, and that's hard. So Reg A we thought would work fantastically for online capital raising. Online capital raising has been slow to develop. Yeah. It will happen. You know, I'm not sure if it's gonna, if, if it's my lifetime, your lifetime, or our children's lifetime. Mm -hmm. but. We know where it's going, mm -hmm. and what can we do to accelerate it? So we've been trying, big supporters of Reg A. We push to allow Reg A for SEC reporting companies. We've got other proposals in the SEC's concept release, how to make Reg A more useful. We think it is so important, now that we've taken away the idea that the stock market is where you raise, is where you raise the capital, is online capital raising, small companies need it. We cannot force our public companies to have to raise their capital in the private market to un through unregulated intermediaries that just then sell it into the public market. You know, that's forced intermediation. The SEC should never force intermediation. They should let companies be able to raise capital directly from the buyers who want to own their invest in their companies. So, so then, Earlier this year, the SEC proposed amendments to protect retail investors in Rule 15C to 11. What is OTC Markets Group's position on this, and how, do you, how did you respond to the SEC during the comments process? Well, Robert, the comment process is open. So we've, we've done a first comment, which anchors some of our ideas, because at a high level, we agree with the SEC that Companies need to make public information available, especially if insiders and affiliates are trading. Is, and for Main Street investors, should really see public markets for companies with information available. Now, I think what the SEC missed out on was there was a bunch of sophisticated investors who are not institutions, they're not accredited investors, they're, they're there are little investors across the United States who've read Graham and Dodd's books, The Intelligent Investor, and they love digging around for information. They do their research. They make markets work. You know, when a company's publishing their financial disclosure, these are the ones who drive your valuation. They're the thoughtful analysts, more of them, and they're the ones we want to design markets to work for. 
is, is really, rather than someone who wants to just put an order in on any stock they see a symbol and think that it's going to be, it's going to work out perfectly. Right. So that part I think got missed out. So we have some ideas of how to create a market for, for, for those type of investors. And we also have some ideas where some of the responsibilities and roles may not be in the right place. You know, the SEC talks about gatekeepers a lot, mm -hmm. but you can't have a gatekeeper if they're not next to the gate. And, you know, we're in complete alignment that, the, that we need to restrict insiders from buying and selling securities that don't have current information. Mm -hmm. We think that's best as a responsibility of that insider, should be 10 v 5 fraud, and a secondary responsibility under the broker who that person, who that entity is a client of. You know, it can't be, you know, the rule itself tries to put responsibility, everything on the market maker. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the SEC and the FINRA rules are called know your customer. Mm -hmm. It's not called know your correspondence customers. Right. And so that just won't work. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of those plumbing issues and how to thoughtfully design it, but you know, we're, we're excited to be in a conversation with the SEC of getting towards their goals. And, you know, and finally, the SEC is trying to address shell companies. Mm -hmm. And so at one level, how do we address bad practices? And you can say ban anything that looks like a shell. Well, the problem is startups look like shells. Small emerging companies. So you're going to close out a whole world of small companies because brokers say, oh, that could be a shell. They haven't gotten far enough along in their business. They haven't gotten far enough along. What we really have to look at is with shell companies and with smaller companies, truthfully, which is, is when can insiders and affiliates sell? And, and in what manner can they do it? And because that's where the bad practices take place, how long should a company, what information does a company need to make after, after it engages in a reverse merger transaction. If you look at our friends in Canada, you know, they have these structured shells called CPCs, which are, which allow, which, which are a shell with a board, with some business interests. They're, they're mini SPACs. Right. It's a great product. That said, two thirds of the new companies coming to the Canadian exchanges are reverse mergers to shells. So it shows there's a real functional need in small company form formation. And instead of just banning that type because we see some problems, let's figure out how to get the best practices out there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a real challenge for us is, and, and at the end of the day, it's not the company, the type of company, or the security with the red flags, it's people we're addressing. And we need to highlight what are people's responsibilities. Right. Well, you know, not to skip around on you, I know we have a set list, but this really, what you're saying ties in a lot with, um, you know, I just did an interview uh, with an investor discussing the SEC proposals on removing dark stocks. And it, it's interesting. I mean, it really sounds like what the SEC is trying to address and you're in alignment with them is really the people problem. Not necessarily that there aren't good businesses that are technically dark stocks, but there's just some of those bad actors that are continuing to be bad actors because they see inefficiencies. Am I kind of on, this, yeah. on the and point see, there? And, and, 
you know, a big challenge with running any market is, you know, our goal has always been how do we put the information on a screen and into a machine so the market can find the right price for, for a security? Price risk, that's what markets do. And it's very hard to make markets safe for investors that don't do any research. And in fact, we break markets. And we have that debate with the S&P 500 now that you know, half the investors in a company will be just blind index investors who don't do any fundamental analysis. Right. They just, they, they buy the most popular stocks. And that's a great, you know, buying index, low cost index funds is a fantastic investment strategy. It's made it so the stock market can hold people's life savings safely mm -hmm. is, and retire on it. So it's a great part, but we can't forget that individual stocks have risk. And we need to have a market that can handle that, that we're not pretending that individual stocks are index funds. Mm -hmm. And we also, with small companies, because let's be straightforward, small companies are like the unpopular kids in, in high school. Unfortunately. The Russell 2000, you need to have an over $150 million market cap to even get in the Russell. All the data we've seen, you need to have over a $500 million market cap to have the majority of your investors be institutions. So who are your investors? They're the investors that are the stock pickers looking for the utility, the financial returns. There's investors who are buying your stock because it's fun to trade. You know, whether it's a range of someone trading a stock because it's volatile, is we don't talk about enough or people who want to own Berkshire Hathaway because it's great to go to the annual meeting. You know, we forget about that. You know, we think a lot about the cool hand of the analytic investor, but stocks can be fun. And finally, the most powerful piece, and this is something we see in a wide range of securities on our market, is the investors who care about the cause of a company that have strong shared value and want, values want to help it. You know, Tesla. They're always going to be super valued because there's a group of investors who believe in the electronification of transport. It will always have this long-term capital base. BlackBerry used to. Everybody in finance had a BlackBerry. And it had a great cost of capital. Then it didn't. We see in our market across different types of industries, biotech, people who want to support curing a disease, Community banks probably are the best public companies at attracting their clients, their neighbors, the, the businesses they serve with these long-term shareholder bases. They don't need that much liquidity because most people own a community bank, hold it forever. Right. On the other side, cannabis stocks, you know, the next generation who wants to see cannabis be legalized, that they want to see this industry develop. They're buying into that. And so, so there's a whole mixture of what the stock market serves. And we need to be aware of it. Not every investor is an index investor is, and looking for that type of experience. And we want to have stock markets be able to provide all of those different services. So I have to ask, you know, following up on, on this, this 
interview that I did also, and, and also really on some of these, these proposals out there on removing dark stocks, you know, what, what measures are being taken by, by OTC markets to try and mitigate this, I have to say, a potential disaster for some investors out there? So, you know, we proposed, it, we proposed in, in our, first, first, our first letter mm-hmm. is we have a market which we've been called the expert market. And create a market where the, the data, the pricing data, doesn't go out to the non-professional investors. You know, we could make it that it only goes to broker-dealers or it only goes to accredited investors, but then it would hurt the little guy from the no-name stocks. And we need those people in the markets. You know, these are, these are places, I go back, every Graham and Dodd investor, you know, who read The Intelligent Investor. They buy bankruptcies, they buy financial restructurings, they buy delistings from exchanges, they buy spinoffs, they buy cash shells, they buy, they buy liquidations, they buy dark companies, they dig around for, they're called rare and inactives, is what they call them sometimes. And you know, it's, a, it's a fantastic, fun way to actually make good returns, if you do the research. And the unbelievable thing is that if we're trying to say, oh, we don't want to let brokers trade stocks anymore, or we don't want market makers competing for liquidity in these securities, when the real problem is just a small segment of Main Street investors who don't do the work. So we should you know, put up a gate. And you can gate access, you can gate information distribution, and I think it's a pretty fair part is, number one, if you're a company and you're not making information publicly available, number one, insiders should not be able to buy or sell. That's securities fraud. Second is, and this is, this is, this is important, is if a company is a dark security, we want as much market competition as possible. You know, we want pricing because that keeps it honest for the outside investors. Right. We don't want to kill that market. So my next question, and, and this is a question that ties into everything that you just said. And also, I've been wanting to really ask for a long time because it's, it's an issue that's brought up really all the time that issuers listed on either the OTCQB or the QX, they see those tiers as stopping posts, you know, before graduating to NASDAQ or NYSE. And and really some of those reasons include the lack of visibility to a greater number of investors. Online brokerage houses uh, won't execute OTC-listed company trades for retail investors and institutional investors' rules not allowing them to invest in OTC-listed stocks. You know, in my personal opinion, I think these rules are a little outdated and a little ludicrous, <laughs> but you know, what, what would you say are some measures that are being done by OTC markets to tackle some of these uh, gripes, I'd say? So, so our view is about, you know, there's not a single, the, the, for most investors, they can buy some OTC stocks. And at a high level, you know, if the stocks which have the widest pool of investors is if you're in the S&P 500, you pay a dividend, your earnings have been growing, sure. and you're in a non-controversial industry. Mm-hmm. You, a, as a company, you have lots of investors. Everybody else is working backwards from that number. Right. So, and as I said about smaller companies, 
they get sold this idea of big institutional investors that they'll suddenly get on an exchange. But the math is until you get to $150 million market cap, you're not in the Russell. So there's no index money. And it's a very small amount. There's actually an academic study because there's the Russell 2000 is, 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 is the bottom two-thirds of the 3,000 largest public companies. And the top of the Russell 2000 gets a higher allocation than the bottom of the Russell 1000. So there's that because of how money is allocated. Right. And I think it's, it's, it's a couple hundred times the allocation between the bottom of the Russell 2000 and the top of the Russell 2000 by dollar amount. Mm -hmm. so, it's a, so, so that part of it is, is going to an exchange. We like having successful graduates, but we don't believe they should graduate until they're large enough to support the increased expense and really be big enough and have a story to fit on the exchanges. And most of the work you do to attract that pool of investors, whether it's individuals, family offices, hedge funds, value-oriented stock pickers, that type of community investors, that's going to help you all the way through. So they don't go away when you, when you go up to an exchange. Now, it's very easy for a public company to get turned down by turned down when they show up and say, oh, we don't buy OTC stocks. But if you go look at that investor's portfolio, they'll have some OTC stocks. I think every hedge fund in the world has owned Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac at some point of time during the lots of large, large wealth advisors own OTC ADRs. Community banks are distributed out across America into brokerage firms. But they don't buy every OTC stock. And if you look at the New York Stock Exchange, you're buying a brand from them. It's the square peg hole you have to fit into. It's highly expensive. You need lots of different advisors. Our model is about giving companies a platform to provide their disclosure, the business transparency, and demonstrate their levels of compliance and governance. But you build your own brand. And in many ways, that's the future. I mean, there are, there are lots of different players on social media. You can buy an ad in the New York Times that says, I'm in the New York Times, an ad. And, or you can build a brand, your own brand, which is earned and owned on our market. And we've, you know, we've seen whether, especially with innovative products, like GBTC's Bitcoin product, it traded a ton. I just saw a piece that said, why have the other Bitcoin products not gained traction compared to GBTC? And GBTC is an OTCQX company. And GBTC is sponsored by Grayscale. And Barry Silbert, before he did Grayscale of the Bitcoin products, he created something called Second Markets, which was trying to challenge exchanges for trading Facebook shares, LinkedIn shares. And when he wanted to create his own innovative product, he looked at us, which we take as a huge compliment. So that's, so that's a part. But there is a, you know, there's a challenge. You're not going to get all the investors. And you're also going to be constantly approached for two reasons. Number one, the advisors, when you go to an exchange, get paid a lot more. There's a lot more compliance work to do. Now, if your idea of fun 
is hanging around with your accountant and your lawyers more because they're getting paid, so they're finding it fun, is, you know, if you're a lawyer and, and one of your clients upgrades from OTC to, to one of the exchanges, you get to put another kid through college. Sure. Is, and so do some of your partners. <laughs> we, the only way to make being public lower cost is have it be about putting the information into the market and using market forces and feedback. And the market always gets it right eventually. Right. And people complain about it because in the short term, the market's mostly right and sometimes ludicrously wrong. I mean, Warren Buffett talks about this all the time. And that's part of the fun of the stock market. Right. So what we try to do, our view has always been not to say something's good or bad, but is there some opacity of information that is keeping the market from getting to the right place? And how can we help that information get into the market so that, so, so that the market does its job as a believer in market forces? Right. Well, so my follow-up to that is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong in my estimation and one, one aspect of your answer is that it's almost somewhat of a, a myth to say that you know institutional money can't go in and invest in some of these OTC stocks. It's more like uh, they might just be paying that company lip service because it's a company that might not fit their criteria for a potential so, investment. So, institu so, so for institutions that want to own your stock, mm -hmm. you know, they want to own your stock. For institutions that want to sell your stock, and this is what companies forget. We go to conferences, we're a public company, and we go to conferences and we meet investors, and there's two types of investors we meet at all these institutional small company conferences. There's one type of investors who come in and they tell us about the stocks they own in our market, the ones that have done well, the quiet ones that they've discovered, and the ones they like, the ones they've avoided, the ones they've watched but haven't, have stayed away from because Mr. Market's going ludicrous in that one, is, and, but they're thoughtful, they've been users, they're part of our community. And they're connected with our cause. They're like, we love what you've done to make this market more efficient and transparent for investors, more competitive for broker-dealers. You know, you've done a fantastic job. It has changed so much in 20 years. And you know, the exchanges used to be way up here. The OTC market was down here. We've closed that gap significantly. You know, Two-thirds of that gap is closed. And you know, there's a great Hemingway line that says, true nobility is being superior to your former self. And that's what OTC Markets does. So, but the, the other side is, there's a second group of investors. And these are intermediaries pretending to be institutional investors. And they go to OTC companies and they say, look, we'll raise you capital, but you need to upgrade. And you need to issue a bunch of press releases. And you need more liquidity. And if, if an investor is looking in your company to be able to buy your stock and you're not raising capital, liquidity is a problem. They have to wait. It takes some time. But if you're trying to raise capital and an investor saying, oh, no, I need more liquidity in the market, they're not asking to invest in your company. They're saying, how big is the door for me to get out? And so the focus on liquidity is we're making a mistake if we're focusing only on liquidity and not capital raising from because there's a real problem 
in that we're fostering the worst practices of these intermediaries who don't care about your valuation. Right. All they care is about the discount of the stock they can get, the dilutive protections they have, and putting short-term news in the market to have you pick up a bunch of investors who don't understand your company, aren't going to be long-term, but they love an exchange listing because that sounds great. And we, we see that with companies where it looks very good, they get some of this capital, but then they really stall their business growth plans for, because for the long term- It, just, it, it accelerates it yeah. just way too fast. Are you, you know, are you in this game for management to sell their shares quickly? Mm-hmm. List on exchange. If you're in the game to build value of your business over the long term and have more time to focus on building your business, I think that's a place for us. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you think about biotechs a lot when it comes to the graduating or yeah. the uplisting, you know, and you, you really see that a lot where they do th- these deals because they're maybe sold a bill of goods of like, look, it's just easier for me to sell to my book that, hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to uplist to NASDAQ. Yeah. This is what we're raising the money for. And it, it seems like that's where it's really coming from. And, and that's and that's a part is, is the are the investors true investors mm-hmm. Or are they intermediaries? And we're building our markets for intermediaries, and that's a mistake in the financial world. And that's one of the reasons why we want to make, have Reg A work. We want other ways for companies to raise capital directly from the investors who want to own them. It is, you know, it's so important for to make public markets successful. So, I mean, look, you're the CEO of a company listed on OTCQX. I mean, so it's really not as frustrating as maybe some might perceive it to be. And that, look, if an institutional investor or if a retail investor wants to invest in your company, it's not as difficult as maybe it might be perceived out there. It, you know, there are challenges. Sure. And some of the challenges come through when, you know, when there's regulatory uh, actions against the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And it's usually in this industry, though now it's becoming uh, equal opportunity, is, is the bad – we seem to spend too much time in this industry – trying to stop bad practices rather than foster good practices. And, you know, there's an old line that eBay said, people are, we believe people are, be- are, are basically good. And, but in markets, we focus on the 5% that are not. They're trying to cut corners and they've been here forever. But you can't, you can't grow a garden with only weed killer. Sure. And you need the other things, and sunlight's a big piece is, you know, a little bit of the things that fertilize growth. And you definitely wouldn't want to have your vegetable garden be only farmed with weed killer. Right. Is, and so that's, you know, so that's for, for us, we have a very long-term view. We uh, build a better platform. It's about putting the data out there for, for investors to make their own choices. Mm-hmm. And that is the only way we can see making it less painful to be public for smaller companies. We can't have you hiring, you need audited financials every year. That's just like, we need audited financials, but we also need other ways of getting disclosure out there, whether it's the virtual investor conferences we're creating, you know, the video, the, having the ability to, to video broadcast your annual meeting is those are the dynamic storytelling opportunities for, for investors to get to see company managements and have those one-way conversations 
where they get the look and the feel of management. Absolutely. Is, you know, we've done things to, to, to collect data sources from other places, which builds trust in the market. You know, we now have for OTCQX and OTCQB companies, we have feeds directly from the SEC registered transfer agents of how many shares are outstanding, how many shares are authorized. So we've, so, so we've increased not only the trust around that data, because direct from their, their regulated transfer agent, but the speed at which that information comes into the market. And we've done that without any extra cost to companies. So those are the places is, as you know, this world moves into the, you know, the information age, and you know, there was the first part was putting it on a screen for a human to see, and now it's getting it into a machine so, so, so we can get the best out of humans and machines. Like, we believe that type of process where you let every company build their own track record and you can fit international companies, you can fit smaller emerging companies, you can fit super conservative, you know, well-managed community banks. They can all build their own reputations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, rather than say, okay, we've got this square, square peg hole, which everyone's got to fit into. And you've got to do all these really expensive things before you put the information out there. When we've got a market, you get to put the information out there and we get to see how the market reacts. So this is going to be kind of an out there question because I know that this is, I've, I've had some funny conversations with, with various investors on, you know, especially some of the things that small micro nano cap companies are up against in terms of costs of being a public company, especially when it comes to audited financials. What, what's your thoughts on maybe going to a, a, not a quarterly anymore, but let's say it's a semi-annual uh, 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 quarterly pro or semi-annual reporting of, of financials. I mean, or annual, I don't know, you know, is there a way in which that you can tier it out or make it easier in that sense? And, and just, just talking your, yeah. your thoughts on that. So, you know, I think it's really important we have the debate. Mm -hmm. And the debate is a few things. We don't want our quarterly reports to look like our annual reports. I can tell you that our annual report, after the auditors have gone through it, the tax accountants have gone through it, we've really checked everything, is super high quality piece of, of data that we've put a lot of thought into. Right. It's a good snapshot of the business. And for a value investor, if you're looking as a fundamental investor, you, you go back and look at five years of annual reports, you slightly ignore the quarterly reports, and you really build a trend. Right. That's where the school where I was taught, taught from. Right. Is now, the real challenge is, and I think what's the painfulness about quarterly reports? And we see it with larger companies. We don't do this. We file our quarterly disclosure documents with our, with our quarterly earnings re press releases. Bigger companies on the exchanges are getting a little looser where they file their they, they publish a press release for their earnings, they do their earnings call, and then their queue gets filed a few days later. And that's kind of ludicrous, but it's because the regulatory information has gotten so expensive and painful and it's slow and boring, and nobody reads it. So if nobody's reading it, why produce it? And we should, so I would say Instead of going to going to a semi-annual 
painful, I would say, how do we make our quarterly reports look like press releases? Mm -hmm. And then the second side is, you know, inside we all have more information in companies. So we have, you know, we get daily reports from, from our ERP systems, we get monthly reports that are better quality, and then we get our quarterly internal reports, which are even better quality, and then when we turn it to an investor information, it's even better quality. But how do we handle, in a world where there's more information, getting it out into the market? And, but faster information is gonna be more raw and have more errors. We just know that. We can't create you know, daily financials at the quality of an annual audited report. So why aren't we having that debate? And how do you handle, how do you anchor companies? Because we want to talk about how we anchor companies in long-term for long-term fundamental investors, which is the annual results. And how do we get more raw information out there, the right level that's not too painful, and give companies what I'd call a duty to correct. If, the wrong, if information goes out there and the market reads it wrong or there's a mistake, that you can fix it. And that way we can have a much more relaxed approach that fosters market pricing and where there's lots of pieces of information that got into the market and nothing happens to the market. It's just, it's, it's taken in. And if the market every once in a while breaks, the information comes out and it doesn't, have it be corrected. And, and, and that, that's the part where, you know, one of the final sides is the focus on liquidity. Liquidity really needs to fit your shareholder base. If we only focus on liquidity, we've got this idea, you know, Facebook will turn over their whole market cap in one day when there's news. And that's kind of important for the market because there's huge news and you get the wisdom of the crowd, a bunch of people trading trading this to get to the right price, and, and there's a whole bunch of different viewpoints. Most of them are quite clueless, but together you get to the right result. And, but for most companies, if they have shareholders who own their shares and want to own their shares long term, mm -hmm. you don't need a lot of liquidity. And if the shareholders are, are smaller holdings, you don't need a lot of liquidity for them to move in and out. We see this with community banks. For the most part, they've got small shareholders who can trade quite easily through an online broker. They also have these fantastic specialized investment banks. At the top, the Sandler O'Neills and the Keith Bruettes, Fig Partners at the middle, and, and, and they can move blocks. And they use the, the market as a reference side. It takes a little bit of time, blocks and small company stocks need to wait a little bit because with big companies you can get you can get size and time you can do things quickly in sizable amounts with small companies you have to give up one right. and it's a bit of a feature because it helps the market handle information asymmetries so you know so for us a lot of the debates get lost in public company markets and they get lost by the advisors who come in and say well the we should do this, and it turns out the advisor suddenly gets to bill higher levels. Right. You have an exchange coming out and saying, we should only allow trading on the exchange because there's only limited amount of trading. If it all came to us, we'd take care of it. Now, that's a monopoly. And that part, 
those ideas float around, though. And, you know, what we want to do is instead foster the complex ecosystem that creates capital formation of lots of different players with knitting it together with technology and transparency so investors can do their jobs and regulators can regulate and we make markets which are scary, competitive, and complex more understandable. I mean, it's, you know, we, I think everybody knows that you've done a lot in terms of lobbying and speaking with the SEC to really help bridge that gap. I mean, how, has there been any progress on that front, or is it still just, just, just a long slog? <laughs> well, you know, the 15C211 proposal has a lot of progress of some ideas that 10 years ago they looked at us like we were crazy people. Yeah. And... But then we built the fundamental size, and we got them to see the perspective. And it's hard for the SEC. They see lots of enforcement cases, but they don't really buy individual stocks. They didn't know the no-name stocks guy was out there. They didn't understand that he'd found a successful way to participate in the public markets where he had an edge by working harder. Is, and he was providing liquidity for people who wanted to take a tax loss for people had a piece of property and they wanted to be able to sell it, which is what the stock market is in many ways, is the stock market is so, for, so stockholders can go to a regulated broker and get the best price for their shares at our fundamental side. And the stock market functioning well lets companies raise more capital, but lets capitalism work. And you know one of our core values is be a capitalist. I mean, our top values are open, transparent, and connected. And, uh, but, you know, we, you know, the, the last two is, is be trusted and be a capitalist. And we're big believers in capitalism. We think there should be more shareholders. We think employees should own more shares. And we think that there should be this system that works for all types of companies to provide the disclosure, demonstrate their compliance and governance, and get the market feedback and providing liquidity for their owners. So in the most recent issue of the Microcap Review, uh, you actually wrote an article titled The Three Principles of Thriving Public Markets. What are they? And why would you say these principles are necessary for thriving public markets? Well, the three principles are being open. You know, once you have a closed group, it becomes groupthink, it becomes a monopoly, it becomes exclusionary. It's undemocratic. I mean, it's constantly, I, I hear, if you could keep out those people, if you could limit it to us good people, it's, that's not how America's thrived. We've thrived by being scrappy. Is we're not, you know, stock markets are not country clubs. They're places where commerce is done, where competition takes place. Is then there's transparency. We're huge believers in that if you put the information out there, the market will find the right price eventually. And then there's finally being connected. It sounds simple. The old days of the stock exchange, and Dick Grosso used to stand there and say, every order needs to come to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange because then we know you're getting the best price. And it was incredible. He built it like the Vatican of finance. So you'd go in there, it was this great experience, and here's this room. Everything needs to go here. But, you know, 
I'm not his generation. I'm not a boomer. Is I'm a millennial and this, there's this internet thing where there's all these networks. And the thing about networks is intermediaries thrive on networks, but intermediaries need to provide value or the market goes around them. And our view is the future of markets is there's going to be all these different little microstructures taking place, and we're going to be connecting them together. So being connected. Don't focus on control. Don't focus on micromanaging the market. Let the market do its job and put the tools and transparency out there for people to compete. Buyers and sellers are not friends. We're never going to have a happy place of that. It's going to be competition, but that's going to create you know, the important part of markets. So, Cromwell, you know, looking ahead at 2020, what, what are some of the trends or upcoming events that our audience should look out for that are important or could affect OTC markets? Well, you know, we like to talk about what we have done mm-hmm. rather than what we're going to try to do. And it gives us a little bit of a license because we can try things that people think are hard and that our first approach may not be the right approach to a tough problem. So, you know, the 15C211 rulemaking is going to be an important piece of rulemaking. The SEC needs to hear from as many perspectives outside the building so they get the right rules out there. They need to hear about how shells are useful, how other countries do these things. You know, a lot of the regulation in 15C211 is moving to make ATS, our ATSs look a lot like the MTFs in Europe, which are, which are a European version of an alternative trading system, uh, as they're regulated under the MIFID-2's SME growth market. So I think that's going to be a big, big change and real opportunity because we're going to be able to directly list securities, onboard new securities. Mm-hmm. We're also going to have a lot more responsibility about making sure that, there's, that companies are providing continuous disclosure. So that, so, you know, that's a big piece. And then the other side is how do we digitalize data, both into brokerage firms from a compliance perspective so we can address risk thoughtfully. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, we don't see red flags should stop trading in a security. We see they should be used to identify and redline bad actors. And finally, where are the other areas we can add more transparency in? What are the tools that we can take our different, our virtual conference services and our, and our other video and audio services for public companies to be able to tell their story and connect and push them into the social media channels. Mm-hmm. You know, investor relations, and this is for very large companies because we have relationships with large companies to smaller companies, is far behind the, the, the traditional marketing departments. And investor relations is, is, is usually still built on face-to-face meetings. And if you brought over someone from the, from the marketing or communications department of a large company into the investor relations team, they'd say, why are you flying around meeting people? You should meet the investors where you can have thoughtful two-way conversations. But everything that's a one-way conversation, you want to put online. Whether and you and and I think that's the challenge for us as a market operator. You see, with our new space, 
we have market openings, we have video, we have videos, we have interviews, we have studios. How do we build those tools out over time? We've got some exciting things coming. That's going to make being public more fun. And you know, and in in the future, your public disclosure, your public pricing, is integrated with being a transparent business. I can't see the next generation being acceptable of companies being opaque or dark and still being trusted or relied upon. And for those, we're building those tools. And Cromwell, real quick, you know, uh, you mentioned a few names in, in support of some of what you were saying out there. So are, are you a shareholder in any of the companies that you mentioned? So I'm a shareholder in OTC Markets Group. And that's disclosed in our annual report, so you can look up at my shareholdings. But running a stock market, one of the saddest things is that I can't buy individual stocks in the OTC market anymore. But someday in my retirement, I'll be able to go around and give some competition to no-name stocks as well as some other investors. <laughs> so where can our audience go and find more information about you and OTC Markets? OTCMarkets.com www.otcmarkets.com. What's your, you have a Twitter handle. What's, what's your Twitter handle? Cromwell C. Cromwell C. Got it. Great. My name is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Cromwell, really appreciate taking, taking this much Thank time you. today. Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Cromwell, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknews.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or Spotify and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsNow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.